This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Oncology Knowledge into Practice podcast, where we discuss game-changing topics in clinical oncology with leading experts in the field. In this series, we're focusing on the ever-changing treatment landscape for cancers of the hematological system. This series is supported by educational grants from Servier Pharmaceuticals, LLC, and Takeda, who have had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. If you'd like to check out any of the publications that we mentioned in this episode, there's references and links for these in the episode notes. We're your hosts, Hannah Wilgar and Andre Grasser. Last week, we considered the importance of stratifying patients with myelodysplastic syndrome based on their risk of progression to acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. Today, we're going to start thinking about treatment strategies for patients who do develop AML by first considering how these strategies may differ for younger and older patients. To answer our questions on this topic, we've invited Dr. Tapan Kadir, Associate Professor in the Department of Leukemia at the University of Texas ND Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. As always, to get started, we're going to spend a few minutes discussing the basics, but if you're already familiar with this topic, do feel free to skip ahead to the interview at the five-minute mark. Acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, is more common in older adults, and the average age at the time of diagnosis for AML is about 65 years. However, AML is also found in younger adults and children, and at different ages, AML is associated with different characteristics, different treatment options, and different survival rates. According to the National Cancer Intelligence Network, five-year survival rates in England between 2001 and 2010 were more than 65% in children aged 14 or younger, around 60% in people aged between 15 and 24, almost 40% in people aged between 25 and 64, and just around 5% in people aged 65 or older. That said, according to Vakiti and colleagues, cure rates have improved in recent years, though they still stand at just 15% for patients older than 60, compared to 40% in patients younger than 60. Differences between AML patients at different ages include differences in their underlying genetics, epigenetics, and cytogenetics. According to a 2018 study by Bellori and colleagues, pediatric patients with AML have lower rates of mutations, although they are more likely to harbor abnormalities in certain genes. Silva and colleagues also noted that adults have more evidence of epigenetic abnormalities. However, as noted by Tarlock and colleagues, in terms of cytogenetics, pediatric AML is more commonly associated with recurring chromosomal alterations. In a similar vein, not surprisingly, patients of different ages also differ in their ECOG performances, with older patients having poorer performance levels as illustrated by a population-based registry study by Nagal and colleagues. Because of all of these differences, treatment regimens vary between older and younger patients with AML, and treatment guidelines tend to be age-specific too, although there is broad overlap between them. Guidelines from the American Society of Hematology and ESMO guidelines only cover adults, while guidelines for children have been published by the Childhood Leukemia Clinicians Network and the National Cancer Institute. For both age groups, first-line therapy generally consists of chemotherapy of varying intensities with or without gemtuzumab ozogamicin, an antibody drug conjugate therapy, and most patients should also receive post-remission therapy, which can again include chemotherapies of varying intensities, as well as hemopoietic stem cell transplantations or HSCT. However, for adult regimens, one of the first factors guiding the intensity of therapy is the patient's fitness, with unfit patients receiving less intensive regimens. 
Meanwhile, fitness assessments are absent from childhood guidelines. And as summarised by Dr. Jun Im in 2018, recent improvements in outcomes of paediatric AML reflect the use of intensive chemotherapy and post-remission treatment with additional anthracyclines alongside hydrocytarabine or hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Another first-line option for adult patients is the targeted therapy midostorin, specifically for adults who harbour mutations in the FLT3 gene. However, there is limited experience with the targeted therapy midostorin in paediatric AML patients, and so there have not yet been firm recommendations for its use in paediatric guidelines. For relapsed or refractory patients, in the paediatric setting, the options are the same as those available in the first line, including a second transplant which may be efficacious for some patients. For relapsed and refractory adults, the PDQ Adult Treatment Editorial Board lists several chemotherapy combinations that have shown activity in recurrent AML. However, according to ESMO guidelines for adults, there are limited options that show long-term promise, though mutation analysis for FLT3 should be repeated and positive patients should receive gilteritinib chemotherapy. For others, HSCT is the most effective treatment option for those that can tolerate it. The differences between adult and pediatric AML patients adds a complication to an already complex therapy area, and navigating the evidence and guidelines for both age groups can be overwhelming. So to help us begin this navigation process, we've invited Dr. Tapan Kadir, Associate Professor in the Department of Leukemia at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Pleasure to be here. So how should adult and pediatric patients with AML be classified? So I think that's uh, that's a very relevant and important question in this day and age. I think that, uh, you know, uh, the... The median age of diagnosis, as you know, of AML is about 68 years of age. And so the vast majority of patients that we treat are over the age of 65, and and, and most of these are adult patients. And so I would say in the U.S., we could estimate anywhere from 19,000 to 20,000 newly diagnosed AML patients who are adults, uh, compared to just about 1,000 patients in the pediatric uh, group uh, with newly diagnosed AML. And so because of that, many of the advances uh, and and the details in classification uh, have been uh, focused on uh, adult patients with newly diagnosed AML. And so on the adult side, the way we, we uh, classify patients uh, is, is by risk. Uh, and, and we determine risk based on pretreatment uh, genomic characteristics. That includes cytogenetics, which are the, uh, the chromosome abnormalities that we see at baseline. And now uh, with the advent of next generation sequencing, we're also using uh, point mutations and somatic uh, recurrent mutations uh, in genes um, uh, as part of the staging system uh, or the classification system. And so currently we're using the ELN 2017 classification system for newly diagnosed uh, older patients or adult patients with AML. This includes three categories, including favorable risk, intermediate risk, and adverse risk. Those in the favorable risk uh, include those who have uh, favorable karyotypes, such as core binding factor, which include translocation 821 or inversion 16. Uh, as well as those with uh, APL, which is translocation 1517, but also those patients who are uh, with a normal karyotype but have only NPM1 mutation uh, with the, with, without a FLT3 ITD mutation or with a very low-level FLT3 ITD mutation. And so that's sort of the, the favorable category. But those in the adverse, uh, there are several, including those with complex karyotype, adverse chromosome abnormalities such as monosomy 5, 7, 17, uh, abnormalities of chromosome 3, uh, mutations in p53, 
a person who has a normal carry type but has a high FLT3 ITD ratio with no NPM1 mutation, those are considered high risk. And then the rest of them sort of fall into this intermediate risk category. And so that's how we classify adults with AML. And, and it, it helps us uh, not only uh, impart a prognostic significance to the patients early on in their treatment, but helps us determine uh, longer-term treatment in terms of, you know, will, will these patients receive maintenance therapy? Will they receive um, time-limited therapy where they're done with the induction consolidation for X number of cycles? Or will these be candidates for allogeneic stem cell transplant? You know, in the pediatric uh, um, uh, sort of uh, community in, in terms of treating AML, uh, they do have a classification system, but it's much less, um, I would say, detailed. Uh, there are three categories, low, intermediate, and high risk. But the low category just includes those with core binding factor AML. Uh, those with uh, high risk includes those with adverse karyotype, and, and intermediate sort of includes everyone else. And so they do not necessarily, as of yet, regularly use the next-generation sequencing as we have sort of robustly expanded in the adult population. But you can see, you can start seeing in many of the cooperative uh, children groups and academic centers that this is being incorporated. So that's how you classify them. Uh, I think even in, in in older patients with AML, you can further classify classify them by fitness and whatnot. But the the the, the key classification is by prognostic risk uh, using these genomic characteristics at baseline. Brilliant, thank you. So, what are the different considerations when deciding on the best choice of therapy for adult versus pediatric patients at first line, post remission, and relapse? Yeah. So, thanks for this question. I think this is one of the biggest uh, decisions that we always have as as AML doctors, is you know how do we pick the best choice of therapy for our patient? Uh, so, it's a complex question. I think we take multiple factors into consideration. I think primarily, we look uh, at the uh, baseline. Um, sort of risk stratification of the patient. So in adults, uh, we have patients uh, who may be classified into ELN favorable, intermediate, or adverse risk. So if you have an adult with uh, ELN favorable risk, these are patients who have uh, an excellent uh, potential for cure uh, with a long-term overall survival rate in the range of 60 to 70% in many cases. And so those patients who want to deliver uh, curative therapy because these patients have a potential for cure without long post-remission therapy. Uh, in those patients with core binding factor, for example, or NPM1 mutated without FLT3 mutations, we offer them the best intensive chemotherapy that we can based on their overall fitness uh, um, and, um, and try to get them uh, in remission, followed by several consolidations, followed by observation alone uh, with looking for minimal residual disease comma, and, and every, any evidence of relapse after that. So, um, that's for favorable risk. Uh, if you look at patients with adverse risk, you know now you're looking at a population that does not respond well to chemotherapy uh, or to low-intensity therapy for that matter. And so uh, many uh, studies have shown that there's really very little difference in many of these subgroups, whether you give intensive chemotherapy or lower-intensity investigational therapy, um, but there is a difference in, in early mortality and toxicity. And so in those patients, we look for uh, potential targets, for example, in those with FLT3 ITD mutations or FLT3 mutations, we may consider combination of chemotherapy with a FLT3 inhibitor. Uh, in patients with very adverse karyotype or P53 mutations or chromosome 3 abnormalities, we may consider uh, clinical trials. Um, and uh, certainly these are patients that we would uh, recommend uh, receiving um, an allogeneic stem cell transplant uh, in remission in first remission rather than, than waiting for relapse because they have a high risk of relapse 
and certainly remissions will improve their overall survival. And finally, the intermediate uh, category in, in adults, you know, we, we treat them with whatever we think is the best approach, whether it be intensive chemotherapy in young and fit patients uh, compared to lower intensity therapy in older or unfit patients uh, to try to get them into remission. We uh, document their remission not only by morphologic evaluation, but by uh, flow cytometry for minimal residual disease. In those patients who have not achieved clearance or eradication of minimal residual disease after one or two cycles of chemotherapy, these are patients we deem to be high risk and would benefit from allogeneic stem cell transplant in first remission. Um, now, in the, in the current environment, we also have the opportunity to use maintenance therapy, which we did not have previously. Uh, currently, maintenance therapy with oral azacytidine is approved in the U.S. for uh, patients uh, at the end of their induction and consolidation for long-term maintenance to prolong their remissions and thereby improve overall survival. And so those are the considerations that we use in terms of their genomics. Now, when you look at uh, each individual patient beyond their initial baseline genomics, you also have to look at uh, their ability to tolerate the frontline therapy. Uh, we talked a lot about intensive chemotherapy, which is often appropriate for young fit patients who can tolerate that with low early mortality. But when you look at older patients, uh, over 65, over 70, over 80, uh, they may not be um, candidates for intensive chemotherapy. And, and, and fortunately, in the current environment, uh, we have the discovery of venetoclax in combination with low-intensity therapy, such as hypomethylating agents, which has shown high rates of response and uh, significant improvement in overall survival, which we did not have. And so uh, after looking at the baseline genomic and prognostic characteristics, I think the second approaches to look at um, the patient's fitness and whether they qualify for intensive versus lower intensity chemotherapy and whether they there are clinical trials available targeting particular mutations or abnormalities. Um, in pediatric patients, uh, similarly, you know, low intensity patients, low, low risk patients uh, receive intensive chemotherapy followed by consolidation, usually a total of four cycles. Uh, those with high risk therapy, uh, high, high risk uh, AML, tend to get uh, three cycles of chemotherapy followed by a stem cell transplant in first remission. And those in intermediate uh, uh, risk usually get intensive chemotherapy uh, with, again, anthracycline RCS standard for five cycles followed by uh, observation and, and assessment for minimal residual disease. And so I think as, uh, as the field develops, I think more and more of the pediatric patients will start to adopt um, some of the... Um, monitoring uh, characteristics that we use in adult patients. Uh, there's always the question of using uh, drugs such as uh, gemtuzumab, ozogamycin, or mylotarg in the front line. And certainly um, in adults, these, this is uh, of benefit, particularly in those patients with favorable uh, AML, where there's a significant survival benefit with the addition of, of a mylotarg. Uh, less so, but still significant in the intermediate, and potentially not very useful in patients who have uh, adverse uh, risk by ELN. Uh, similarly, in, in pediatric patients, uh, gemtuzumab has been used uh, at a low dose of three milligrams per meter squared um, uh, early on in their treatment uh, just for one cycle. And so these are some of the, the nuances, but you know the, the considerations, uh, the bottom line is, is look at the prognostic uh, characteristics, uh, have that guide your decision for post-remission therapy, and then look at the fitness of the patient as to what is the best therapy that they can tolerate at the moment. Wonderful, thank you. 
So should adolescent and young adult patients be treated according to adult or pediatric guidelines? You know, it's an interesting question and, and a good one. I think um, in pediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, which is much more common in pediatrics and also in this AYA, the adult young, uh, young adult adolescent population, in, in pediatric ALL, there is there are very good and significant guidelines on how to treat and, and which regimen to treat them on. In AML, I would argue that the 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 um, the development of you know, classification, genomic stratification, uh, use of targeted therapies is is so much more developed in the adult AML that I would favor um, that uh, adolescent young adult patients, particularly if they are um, you know um, young adults, should be treated according to the adult. Uh, guidelines. I think it opens the door up uh, uh, much more for uh, closer uh, and, and, and more in-depth uh, genetic sequencing uh, at baseline. Uh, it opens the possibilities of using various targeted therapies, such as FLT3 inhibitors, such as gemtuzumab. Um, it, it opens them for potential clinical trials with things like IDH inhibitors or venetoclax in the front line. So I think that um, I, my opinion would be that in, in those patients who are adolescent young adults, that you try to apply many of the the lessons that we've learned in adult AML uh, to that population. Now, there may be some adolescents who are who are very young um, and, and physically also uh, very young uh, in terms of their body weight and height, that we should certainly apply some of the pediatric dosing strategies where, you know, um, dose modifications are made for pediatrics. I think that should should be uh, kept in mind and, and, and physicians treating these patients should, patients should be mindful of that as well as their emotional and um, social uh, uh, needs. Um, but I think that if, when possible, uh, to try to apply some of the adult uh, guidelines and treatments. Great, thank you for that. So finally, are there any treatments missing from the most up-to-date treatment guidelines for both groups? Well, I think that, uh, like I said, I think this last three to five years has been a tremendous um, boon for AML doctors, uh, particularly in the adult world, uh, with the uh, ability to uh, understand the heterogeneity of AML because of next generation sequencing, uh, with the widespread use of, of genomic sequencing, as well as a better understanding of biology. We have discovered many new therapies that have now been approved uh, for use. Uh, I think that um, in the pediatric um, arena, many of these are still being slow to adopt, and that's just because of the lack of studies, and I think that's appropriate. Um, but I think as as we have more experience in the adult world with targeted drugs such as FLT3 inhibitors, such as IDH1 and 2 inhibitors, such as venetoclax, that these should start uh, to be implemented in uh, pediatric treatments and guidelines, again, uh, on a safe uh, basis uh, with, uh, you know, careful study. Uh, in the adult uh, population, I think, uh, you know, although we have many of these drugs, uh, many of them are um, uh, approved in the relapse refractory setting, and then things are such as um, IDH1 and 2 inhibitors, which are, you know, essentially approved as single agents in the relapse refractory setting uh, with some uh, frontline indication. Uh, Giltaritinib, which is a Next generation uh, FLT3 inhibitor, which is currently approved in the relapse refractory setting, but could potentially be moved into the front line. Uh, things like venetoclax, which is currently only approved in combination with low intensity therapy, 
in older patients for unfit patients with newly diagnosed AML, where, where there are studies looking at uh, combining with more intensive chemotherapy in younger patients to you know, deepen early responses. Um, and then the use of uh, you know things like oral azacitidine, not only uh, in maintenance, but potentially um, earlier on in treatment as well. So I think there are a lot of things that can be moved from second or later line therapy uh, to more uh, early therapy uh, after the appropriate trials have been done. Uh, there are some combination trials with chemotherapy with many of these single agent uh, targeted therapies uh, that need to be done. And, uh, and, and the broader application of many of these targeted agents into the pediatric population. I think certainly a good place to start is this AYA population that you asked me about, where they are younger adults, uh, and um, if, if we see good um, activity and tolerability in those, certainly we can we can push the envelope to uh, younger ages uh, in a safe and, and uh, guided way. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That was another really great answer. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. To recap on the key points we discussed, the vast majority of AML patients are adults, but AML also affects younger patients and children. Both groups are classified based on prognostic risk, and this risk influences the best choice of therapy at first line, post remission and relapse. And in adults, fitness is another important consideration influencing therapy choice. Again, if you'd like to check out any of the publications that we've mentioned today, you'll find references for these in the episode notes. If you enjoyed today, please do subscribe and join us then. And if you have time to leave us a review, we'd love to hear your feedback. If you want more, you can also find free accredited continuing medical education modules on our website, onkip.com. And you can find a link to this in the episode notes. So please do check it out. If you're a Twitter fan, our handle is at onkip. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.